furthest you've ever gone to get a laugh? You know, honestly, nothing immediately comes to mind. And I think that is worse than if I had an embarrassing story, because I think that speaks to the degree to which my entire life has been one long kind of, uh, you know, effort to get that laugh. I think I talked about in the King of Comedy episode being the kind of unfunny class clown, the sort of self-appointed class clown. So it's not so much one moment that sticks out. It's a kind of a 27 year long uh, plateau of trying and failing to get that laugh. (laughs) Josh, how about you? Uh, you know, my biggest laughs have, have, uh, were always unintentional. And uh, so just, it was always like I, everybody started laughing. I was like, what, what are you guys laughing at? You know, like in my head, you know. So I, the first I've gone to get a laugh has never been successful. I, I have uh, done things, I think, probably to try to uh, acquire a laugh. But it was... Uh, didn't happen. And and, and, and and for the most part, my biggest laughs come from when I'm like being sincere and not trying to be funny and everybody just laughs at them. Well, welcome to another episode of Split Picks. Today, we're going back a full century to discuss one of the greatest comedians who has ever graced the screen. It is Mr. Buster Keaton today. Um, Buster was about as innovative behind the camera as he was in front of it. So we have a ton to talk about today. So... I'm once again being joined by Split Toother Bennett Glace. Bennett, how are you? Hey, Craig. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, excited to talk about Buster Keaton. I uh, got to kind of dive into his work for basically the first time since college uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, which has been great. Yeah, and I watched a ton of these as well, and it's been a blast. But, Bennett, last month you interviewed the actor and musician Joshua Burge. Turns out he is a Buster Keaton fan. So today we're bringing Josh on as our special guest. So Josh, how are you doing today? Yeah, not bad for an old guy. Uh, yeah, 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 doing great. Um, yeah, and thank you for having me, Bennett, Craig. Yeah, this is great to be here. Yeah, glad this worked out. And yeah, happy to have you. So the films we're talking about today are The Cook from 1918 and Cops from 1922. So The Cook was not directed by Buster Keaton, but you know we felt this was a short worthy of discussion regardless because it shows Buster in an early supporting role. Um, Josh, you selected this movie, so I'm curious what drew you to this one and why do you think it's worth talking about in the grand scheme of Buster Keaton's work? Well, because of uh, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, uh, was largely the creator of it, but uh, he also was a big supporter of Buster Keaton. And uh, I don't want to get too much into Fatty Arbuckle's story. Uh, anybody can go and watch that or read about it or, you know, and learn about Fatty Arbuckle. But I thought that it was important to do because it showed uh, their friendship that they had as creators, as comedians, as performers. I thought the cook was a pretty good, uh, the best actually, um, semblance of that. So now Bennett, you selected cops, which is a short from 1922. Why this one? And why are we talking about it today? Well, uh, if the cook is a really great example of Buster in kind of a buddy comedy playing off another screen star, I thought cops was a great example of, uh, Buster in more of a kind of solo man on a mission role. Cops kind of takes Buster's romantic uh, romantic 
mission to its kind of most elemental. You know, it opens with him getting this ultimatum from the object of his affection and ends with, uh, won't spoil the ending, but ends with kind of uh, rejection taken to its logical extreme. And uh, the, the the chase on the way gets gets really surreal. And um, I don't know, like cops are obviously uh, in the news of late. And uh, it, it's kind of uh, it's funny to watch Buster Keaton get the best of hundreds and hundreds of police officers throughout the film's runtime. So I think it's important just to kind of briefly talk about Buster's background. And I think we'll approach this episode in a little different format where instead of doing half and half on each, we're kind of just going to talk about both together at the same time. So Buster, you know, he grew up on the vaudeville circuit quite literally. Um, his parents were performers and he was a star by the age of five. But Roscoe Arbuckle was the first person to put Buster on camera. And Josh, it sounds like you probably have a better background of this than I do. Um, but how do you feel about how their styles complement each other? And why do you think they work so well together for so many films? Okay. Well, first of all, I think it was just the sensibility of vaudeville at that time. I think translating into cinema was a new thing it's, uh, we obviously take it for granted these days of course because it's been such a part of our lives through our existence but back then it was a new medium so going from stage to camera i was probably quite daunting in a lot of people's eyes you know at that at that time and i think buster and 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 roscoe just probably hit it off you know, like they just whatever they had the same sensibilities that like this would play, this would play, and this wouldn't play. So let's not do that. And and like that was kind of the way it worked. And I think that the cook is a great example of that. I think. So what do you think was kind of the key to their partnership? Not to be, um, uh, but I'm sorry. It's 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 fat guy, skinny guy. It's, yeah. No. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's... Like I'm sorry. I was trying to dance around it for so long. You know. And I, no. That's it. It's fat guy, skinny guy. Like that's it. Like that's hilarious. That was Laurel and Hardy. Those guys were so good at it, and they they played off that. I, even if it is as simple as fat guy skinny guy, there is something so profound in seeing a, a fat guy and skinny guy play off of each other. I mean, there's a reason that all of the famous comedy duos are mismatched uh, in that way. I think also the film makes great use of their two different like faces. Not just that one of them has a really fat round face and one of them has a really long kind of angular face, but the first shot we get of Fatty is him like crying. It sort of looks like he's peeling potatoes, but I have to assume the joke is that he's cutting onions and that's why he's crying. But like seeing Fatty so emotional like that compared to Buster, who we obviously associate with such a, you know, stony, expressionless face. Um, they play off of each other so wonderfully in that way too, in their expressions. Agreed. Yeah, it, it, it is so funny. I, I mean, something that's so great is like, I mean, obviously, you know, there's edits and everything, but um, how they play off of each other, like like flipping the pans and flipping, you know, like and then catching the, the consomme, catching the consomme. Like, it's so silly. Like, because, like, Kasumi obviously would not stay in the dish. But, like, it, it's brilliant. And it's, it is funny. And it, it was uh, the humor in it is um, a big part of it is uh, Fat Guy Skinny Guy. So it seems like in Buster's own, when he directs, he's not always the chaotic presence. But he, in The Cook, I feel like he kind of plays the troublemaker early on where he's, you know, just kind of causing a bit of a ruckus. But... I feel like in his films, he's often wrongly accused of being the troublemaker or put in a position where he has to restore order to the world around him. 
So I'm curious, what do you guys see as being the difference in these two films, uh, how they use their comedy? Uh, well, that's a good point. Uh, that, yeah, he, um, in, in The Cook, he is kind of the agent of chaos. He's both, uh, both on the restaurant floor uh, when he's kind of close talking with all the women, when he's kind of showing off his dance moves, and then when he's in kind of the back of the house kind of getting in Fatty's way, whereas... In cops, he's um, kind of a stand-in for anybody. He's he's kind of an every protagonist, uh, and we're supposed to be kind of on his side. Um, it's it's sort of a kind of a fun reversal there, and it's maybe uh, maybe reflective of the fact that he's you know a co-director on Cops, and you know wants to depict himself in a slightly more uh, heroic or admirable light. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I I don't think he's intentionally being like antagonistic at all i think it's just being silly like i i um like i I've, I've worked as <laughs> at the middle of the house myself and like i just know that like it feels like it's two different worlds between um the front of the house and the back of the house you know like and and it's a really strange thing you know and i don't think it was necessarily trying to cause trouble but he you know he does. Yeah, antagonistic is maybe not the word I would use. I guess it's just more like he's introducing chaos into an ordered world in The Cook. And in Cops, he's um, a regular guy in a world that is chaotic, seemingly. He's the like wacky guy, the sort of like Jerry Lewis, Jim Carrey figure in The Cook. And he's uh, some regular guy kind of plunked into a wacky situation in Cops, I guess is more how I see it. Right, like you're not going to get a dance sequence breakout in Cops, but that is one thing I wanted to ask both of you about. You know, just seemingly out of nowhere, they just start dancing and then it spreads from the front of the house to the back of the house. And I guess going off of that, like, do you guys have a favorite gag from this film? And um, w- One thing that never failed to make me laugh was the fact that all of the food, um, particularly like the liquid food, no matter what it is, is coming out of the same big uh, tub. Yes. Um, when he orders the first, when she gets the coffee and it comes out of it, and then the brown soup that comes out of it. Brown soup is such a funny gag, and it reminded me that whole thing reminded me of two jokes from The Simpsons. It reminded me of there's a bit where they're going to buy shoes, and Marge rattles off like they need a good sturdy shoe for funerals, weddings, visits to elderly relatives, blah blah. blah. And the guy goes. Uh, well, we have a brown shoe. Um, and it also reminded me of when they go to the Duff Brewery and like Duff, Duff Light, and Duff Dry are all coming out of the same tube into the same big bucket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> reminded me of that. That, that. that gag, no matter how many times he goes back. My grandfather used to always say, he's like, uh, you know, like when you be eating ice cream or whatever, he's like, what do you mean this is better than the other one? He's like, it all comes out of the same tank, you know? Like, <laughs> And like that, that was like always the joke, you know, like gasoline, whatever. It all comes out of the same tank. Like it is like it was always the same thing, you know. Like yeah, I, I love that Bennett. Yeah, it's great. What about you? Favorite uh, favorite bit or favorite gag uh, from the movie? I I love the the uh, physicality of like flipping the pancakes and throwing. Like I know there's edits and everybody were like you know Buster caught the things, but like all that stuff. And then um, that's that's why I recommend the cook more than anything i i think it's only historically profound i don't think it's anything and in, it's innately profound like in its film of itself 
I think it's uh, it's about as good an intro as any, I think, you could get to kind of their two sensibilities. Um, I don't think I had ever actually seen... Um, I, I was obviously familiar with Fatty Arbuckle. I was mostly, unfortunately, familiar with, like, The Scandal, uh, which, again, I mean, if you guys want to read about it, there's plenty of podcasts, and uh, even, even the Wikipedia page could probably do a better job of describing it than I can. But, yeah, I was mostly familiar with him through that. And uh, seeing the two of them on screen together, what a, what a way... Uh, what, what an introduction to Fatty in particular. And I think if, you know, if, if listeners are looking for an intro to uh, one or both of these guys you can't do much better than uh, the cook kind of seeing them you know literally throwing plates and stuff at each other yeah and it's sad i, I mean it's sad about fede arbuckle because regardless of what everybody's opinion is about that scandal if, if you don't know about it then you know read about it that's fine but it's like basically the first hollywood scandal and he wasn't convicted but buster continued to uh employ roscoe Fatty Arbuckle for years after the horrible scandal that it was, you know, like whatever. And I, I, this is something about like that type of like friendship and meaningful relationship that you have with another artist, another human being that I, 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 I think is pretty cool and important. So, Josh, you mentioned in your recent interview with Bennett that's available now on Split Tooth um, that one of the keys to acting in comedy is just to never break and Buster Keaton was the ultimate stone face. So I'm curious, what have you learned from Buster Keaton as an actor and especially while doing comedy? Like, what do you take away from him? Well, I think he used to like to break. It was, there was a point in time where like he didn't, he, he decided it just didn't look good. And uh, he, he, he didn't want to do that anymore. So he became a stone face. And I feel that way as well. Cause like, when people post photos of me or whatever and like my teeth are showing and I'm smiling, like I don't like it. I don't know. Something about Buster Keaton must've resonated with him as well. In that way, he decided my films would be better if, if if I just don't laugh and smile, if I just stay this. So now Josh, I'm curious because you selected the cook and I'm sure you're asked about spaghetti a lot, but this features an amazing scene with four guys at a table eating spaghetti in increasingly strange ways. So I'm curious, what do you think makes spaghetti such a uh, compelling comedic tool? And why didn't the silent stars ever use sauce? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, I, I don't know why they didn't use sauce, but um, I, 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 now I'm thinking about why they didn't use sauce. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's probably, I, I, I'm assuming it just didn't play. That's just the way it was back then. I, I'm assuming it's by the new sauce. Why I think spaghetti is funny because it's long, it's noodly, it's sloppy, it's it's totally gag worthy. Everything, the word itself, spaghetti, is hilarious. Like it is such a funny word, and uh, just everything about it is so funny. And I think that's why people have used it like over the years. Like I, I mean. You know, it's like a funny bit, like when a like a kindergartner, like a toddler, says "paschetti," like like, that's hilarious. You know, like and no, it's spaghetti, which is even more ridiculous. It's it's equally ridiculous. Like so, it's so funny. You know, like that's probably all it comes down to. (laughs) It's got to be among the most. No, like photographed foodstuffs there is like when i think of famous eating scenes 
there's like five famous spaghetti scenes that come to mind. And I don't know that you could say the same about other types of food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know the top five stroganoff scenes. <laughs> That's yeah. a list waiting to happen. <laughs> I, I like too, that it's, um, it, it's introduced to the title card as, um, Italy's national dish. So like it, it, it get, it made me wonder like what audiences in 1918 have never seen spaghetti before. What an interesting thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is strange. Like, I mean, obviously, like, probably, obviously, people in Los Angeles because it, it was shot in Los Angeles, but like New York, but like I, I don't, I don't know. Like, did did people in uh, Ohio know about the spaghetti in 1918? I don't, I don't have any idea. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, maybe all of their their wild ways to try and eat it were, you know, maybe that is maybe there's a kernel of of, of reality to that. I mean, I, I personally like the guy who funnels it into his mouth. Uh, it's a good move. Also, Fatty cutting it up with the beaters. I'm not sure what that was intended to do. <laughs> I liked when Arbuckle wraps around his finger and then like does the ring pop and eats it that way. I thought that was that was efficient. So, Josh, I asked this because for people who aren't familiar with your work, there's a scene in Buzzard where your character's eating spaghetti in bed, and it is just it's a standout moment from the film. So, I'm curious if you took some direct inspiration from this film. Uh. Well, no, not necessarily, but I took direct inspiration from it in the way that I took direct inspiration from anybody that's ever put anything on film, which is just do it, man. Mm-hmm. You just do it. Like, don't worry about it. And so, like, it wasn't from this film in particular, but it was certainly Buster Keaton or or Chaplin or the Marx Brothers, Paul Newman and Kula and Luke eating the eggs. And like, you know, like, I, I mean, like it was, you just got to do it. And like, we had one plate of spaghetti and that was it. We had one take. So, uh, you just go for it and you just do it and then, um, see what happens. You know, is there, is there something that's supposed to be more meaningful about it? <laughs> I don't know. No, no, no. <laughs> it really was just me eating a plate of spaghetti, dudes. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I just thought it was a funny coincidence that uh, spaghetti turned up in this. Uh, maybe the first <laughs> instance of spaghetti in an American film, perhaps. No, people like it. Like, I, I, I heard uh, um, a ghost story. Oh, the pie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind of a similar scene. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were inspired by that spaghetti eating scene. That's crazy to me. Oh, really? Interesting. Well, no, because like, we got in comparisons like uh, a gummo, like the kid eats... Uh, a plate of spaghetti in the bathtub while drinking a glass of milk, which is like super oh, disgusting in my so opinion. horrifying. <laughs> With the bacon and, tape to the wall. <laughs> yeah. So we weren't the first to do it, certainly, but like, yeah, you know, whatever. That, that scene certainly does seem to strike a chord with people for whatever reason. I like spaghetti. I think it's weird when I eat spaghetti with my friends and 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 they're like they just look at me like. <laughs> <laughs> like, like say the line, Bart. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nothing. We just want to see you eat it, man. Okay, all right. <laughs> so another reason I asked this is because Buster Keaton often takes conventional items to unconventional places, and you know, obviously, he learned from Arbuckle, and I feel like he just took gag construction to another level in his own films. And this is evident in how both of these films end. Um, so before we get into the end, so Bennett, why don't we talk a little bit about cops? Do you want to give us a little background on cops and 
what Buster's up to in this one? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's about as simple as the story gets, really. Uh, we're introduced to Buster behind bars. It's not clear why at first. Uh, and he's being given an ultimatum by his uh, his object of affection, uh, which is call her unnamed female lead. Says, uh, you know, I won't marry you until you're a big businessman or something to that effect. Uh, the camera zooms out. You make something of yourself. Until yes. you make something of yourself. <laughs> the camera zooms out. He's not, in fact, in jail, though he is perhaps in the in, in the jail of uh, heartache. Uh, he's just behind the gates of a house. Uh, and he sets out to become a big businessman. He uh, he gets sort of, uh, I don't know what the, he gets, uh, he gets hoodwinked by, uh, by a, an unscrupulous fellow, gets tricked into buying a bunch of, like, houseware. Uh, I don't know why he thought that buying a bunch of stuff was the key to proving he was a businessman, but he buys basically a bunch of furnishings and a and a horse uh, and is kind of riding through town and eventually kind of at the halfway point. Uh, incidentally, uh, I think an anarchist throws a bomb into his uh, into his vicinity, which he uses to light a cigarette and then tosses into uh, the like police parade that's going on that day. Um, so eventually the, the last like 10 minutes of the film are kind of one long chase with him and conceivably every cop in the state, uh, kind of in- increasingly surreal, uh, stuff. Um, and then it ends with him, uh, being turned down, uh, once again, and then effectively committing suicide by walking into a big warehouse full of angry police officers. And it has maybe the funniest like closing title card of any movie. Uh, it's just at the end and his kind of flat brim pork pie hat on top of a tombstone. So I ask about the ends because they do have a similar buildup and I think it's important how in Cops, Bennett, like you mentioned, it ends with just the single title card. I think the important thing here though is that once... Buster Keaton was directing films on his own. He would just build jokes until they could go no further. And I think Cops is the perfect ending for that film because where else can that go, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I think um, both films reach kind of apocalyptic stakes, even if that apocalypse is just sort of on like a personal level. They both end with, you know, in the case of The Cook, they're both, you know, in the ocean. In the case of Cops, he's presumably dead and then i think in most of his features even the shorts there's always some sort of explosion there's always something getting hit by a train you know the general obviously has the most expensive shot in the history of silent film uh one week their uh, their house gets hit by uh, a train at the end there's always some sort of big uh explosion big sort of cataclysm and i think yeah uh that that speaks to the degree to which he built gags up until they couldn't go any farther uh i don't know he he really does that better than just about anybody um, I think Jacques Tati is his only rival. I think in, in, in playtime when the when the kind of restaurant falls apart around them is the closest anybody's got, I think, in sound film to doing the sort of stuff that Buster Keaton does. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 that's completely correct. Um, I think that probably was uh, just not even just the nature of filmmaking in the silent era, but I, I mean, what, what else are you going to do? Like, you're going to make the biggest splash you can. But as much as that is true, like I, how do you get to that point is like insane, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so like how he d- delivered, like how he developed like any of these bits, like over his career, like, it's just insane to think about getting to that point where like we can take anything for granted nowadays. Like we can talk about CGI and, and uh, digital, anything, but back then, I mean, it was just, no, it's, we got to do this on 
this film medium, which is just 24 frames a second run through this camera and we have to set this up and time it precisely. And I think that's where the Buster Keaton genius lies. Right. And hopefully nobody's maimed or killed along the way. I mean, it's possibly apocryphal, but one of the, the anecdotes you always hear is that he, he directed his team to keep shooting until he called cut or was killed. Um, I don't know. It, it, speaking of the gag construction again, I don't know how you like watch the films, but for me, like I, I find myself in the shorts, especially like looking around the frame, especially something like the cook that's just on a couple of sets and almost moves on one plane. I find myself looking around the frames at every object, going, "Oh, what is he going to do with that? Oh, what's he going to do with that?" Like seeing stuff like the guy playing the cello, like, "Oh, you know that cello is going to get involved in a gag." I think that's one of like the great pleasures of watching these. Um, uh, is watching the shorts is kind of trying to outthink buster and he always the gag is always funnier than you imagine it's going to be he always comes up with something more creative than you could possibly come up with you know armed with you know a, a chair or, or whatever uh incredible stuff uh, genius doesn't even say it <laughs> like it, it, so many things like surprise you in learning about keaton one thing that totally didn't surprise me was that he described like in 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 getting into filmmaking like the first thing he did the first thing he felt like he needed to do was like to take the camera apart and like the film strip and get it in his hands and like really understand like the mechanism and that it comes across in the films he he understands the like mechanical and material reality of the film um, of like the whole film apparatus I think in ways that like even Chaplin doesn't like the the chase at the end of Sherlock Jr. being the best example but even something like one week his first short there's a sequence where his wife is like taking a bath and she drops her bar of soap outside and you see a hand come in front of the camera to like obscure her while she reaches for the soap like little like meta jokes like that um, you don't see anything like that from um, his contemporaries not that I'm aware of at least yeah, well, I mean, not not to talk shit about Chaplin, but like, he played up to like a like a, a broader standard of like what entertainment was then, and I don't think Keaton was doing that. I think Keaton was doing, um, I think you put it pretty well. He was a tinkerer. Yeah, I mean, I I think as much as he was like pulling from the same bag of tricks that he used on the stage, as much as like stagecraft informed his his acting style. I don't like his acting on screen doesn't seem necessarily like an extension of the theater the way it does for Chaplin. He really seems like he's embracing a totally new tool or a totally new toy that he can tinker with when he's when he's on the stage, which, again, yeah, I mean, not to shit on Chaplin, who is, is obviously a genius and like City Lights and, 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 and the Gold Rush are, you know, immaculate and, you know, live in eternity for a reason. But uh, Keaton is more interesting to me for that like sense of like curiousness and invention. Uh, curiousness is not a word. That sense of curiosity and invention. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You know, like I, I, I think I think Chapman is great, but like I, I think somebody wrote I don't know Craig or Bennett. If, I don't remember who it was, but like they wrote like Chapman hits an emotional string harder than Keaton does. And I agree with that. And like Keaton does not do that. Like Keaton is for the bit in the moment and like take it for face value. And um, Chaplin wrote the song smile. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's um, I was actually just listening. I haven't seen the Bogdanovich documentary, but I was listening to an interview between Bogdanovich and Chuck Workman about it. And one of the things Bogdanovich says has, has helped 
like why he thinks Keaton stands up better than Chaplin is like the lack of sentimentality in Keaton's work. And I love sentimental stuff. I, I was just watching John Ford's A Long Gray Line, Bawling My Eyes Out. And that's a movie that really enmeshes, you know, sentimentality and existentialism really well. But because of Chaplin, people can tend to associate silent films with sentimentality. And I like going to Keaton and seeing the kind of rigorous lack of sentimentality. An ending that's as much of a gut punch, but still very funny as the ending of Cops, you know. I, I appreciate that in, in Keaton, that that stone-facedness um, comes across in, you know, the screenplays and in the, the direction of his films. Yeah. And, and also, that's something I want to discuss with you guys, you know, when we were exchanging documents and whatever. Um, you guys both mentioned, like, when, when you first met Keaton or Chaplin or whatever, like, in film, like, in your living room or whatever. And, and like, in my brain, I can't really separate uh, silent film from black and white film. Like, it's kind of crazy. Like, sound, like, doesn't, like, the Marx Brothers and Chaplin and Keaton, like, they're all kind of the same category to me and versus uh, color talkies. See, weirdly, Keaton is the one that occupies a separate space for me. I would think of, like, the Marx Brothers and Chaplin as basically occupying the same era. Like, I was definitely introduced to them from, like, my, my grandparents. But, yeah, like I mentioned, I had never heard of Buster Keaton until that AFI 10th anniversary list when the general, which had not been on the previous list, came in at number 18. And my understanding of Keaton's legacy is that he was sort of reappraised in um, the 60s. I know Saris in his kind of capsule on him talks about the reappraisal that's going on kind of contemporaneously with him. But I, I thought that was really interesting that seemingly between uh, 1998 and 2008, uh, at least the people at AFI re-remembered who, who Buster Keaton was. So you, you, you were introduced to him, I guess, like around the same time as you, you would have been introduced to Chaplin. I mean, yeah, not, not just Buster Keaton, Harry Langdon, Harry Lloyd. Yeah. Like all the, the even the silent R gang comedies and like, thing, like I was just like, that was all came about like around the same time. And I was really young, you know? And then like, like as I've gotten deeper into it, like, you know, like people are just like, wait, you look like Buster Keaton. I'm like, yeah, I know. But like, <laughs> they're like, well, you guys should make a movie. And I was like, well, I'm thinking about it since like 2005 because my buddy, like, he brought this image, whatever. It's it's a ridiculous story, but he brought this image, and uh, and I was like, yeah, I I'd rather prefer somebody else did the story, you know, because I don't think I'm gonna be that good at telling it, you know. And and Langdon, Lloyd, Laurel and Hardy, they were silent. The like, people don't remember that that Laurel and Hardy started out as silent actors, and uh, yeah, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, our gang comedies, Keystone Cops. But in my brain, like, I don't really, I was like, oh, these are black and white movies, and they just decided not use sound. Like, that, when I was a kid, like, that was the thought process I had, which is ridiculous. Like, I, they, they just didn't have sound, but I didn't understand technology and all that stuff. So, like, Buster Keaton, like, he was not separate from anything else. Like, I, I, I just knew about all those people because... I used to just go to the library and read about the old time actors. Like, cause I just, I thought it was more interesting than whatever was going on in 1988 on television. <laughs> so like, I, I liked it more. So I think this would be a good point to mention that just, you know, from 1920 to 1928, Buster Keaton had Buster Keaton studio. 
Um, and he made 10 features and 19 shorts there in that time. I mean, it's pretty consensus is that that was his greatest period, but I'm curious, what are your personal favorite Keaton films and why? Um, I just revisited it uh, earlier this week for this conversation. I think Sherlock Jr. would probably be number one for me. I mean, you can't beat the general for just the sheer ambition and how the hilarity of some of those gags, but the ending chase uh, in Sherlock Jr., um, when he's going into the different movie scenes, uh, just incredible stuff. It's like Buster Keaton doing postmodernism at a time when like the term modernism was being coined, you know, or was about to be coined. Uh, really just incredible stuff. And uh, it it holds up today better than like most action movies or comedies, let alone action comedies. <laughs> Josh, what about you? Do you have a favorite Keaton? Yeah, Sherlock Jr.'s uh, uh, the general. I'll say another one that I that I like that he he didn't direct it, but I would highly recommend checking out um, is Buster Keaton Rides Again is a National Film Board of Canada uh, documentary about kind of the making of his last uh, short that he co-directed. is It's just really incredible, both uh, if you're looking for just kind of like the cliff notes of, of Buster Keaton's biography and all sorts of behind the scenes of uh, an old Buster Keaton directing gags and kind of getting in a fight with a director over a gag and uh, playing the ukulele. It's good stuff. Yeah, I did watch it. It was it's a fun watch. Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah. Did you guys ever see that interview that he did when he was like just at his house and like he was with his wife like, towards the end of his life? No, I don't think so. No, I saw his episode of uh, This Is Your Life, but I've never seen an interview from. His oh house. yeah, no, yeah. He hates he hates the biography that was made about him in 1958 really? or whatever. Like he hated it. And that, that was kind of the reason I was like, man, we should give this guy a good biography. I'm not probably the person to do it. But, like, I think someone should, you know. But, no, he's, he's, he does this he has this whole video and he's just like, oh, we're going to have dinner, you know. I'll, I'll wash my hands and, you know, maybe after dinner we can play bridge. What do you think about that, you know. And, like. And it's like he's Buster Keaton, man. He's just like it's like, yeah, I don't care about my life. I, I just want to hang out with, uh, you know, my life, my wife, and and play bridge. And I, I'm I'm glad you came over to my place, you know, and uh, with your cameras and everything. But uh, yeah, I'm just gonna hang out. You know, we're gonna have dinner, and I'm gonna play bridge later. And and it's the life. <laughs> So we can we can all think about like him as much as we want to, but like he was just legitimately just like this real dude, like just doing his thing. He's like, this made sense to me in my brain. I I, I was in vaudeville. My parents were in vaudeville. I was in. Uh, now there's this thing called cameras. Now there's a thing called talkies. So I'm fucked and like whatever. And and in the 1960s, he was just in his apartment or in his house, whatever, playing. Playing bridge with his wife. <laughs> his um his regular guyness is another thing I like about him. Not to like say that you have to pick one or the other, but like compared to Chaplin, who I, I always see as more of kind of like an artiste and like an intellectual, versus Keaton, who is just like he's just like a regular guy who like happened to be a genius for like the gag and happened to be able to like learn how to become a genius at like film directing. I don't know, he just yeah, he just liked baseball, like playing bridge. Uh, never lost the spirit of the vaudeville stage, you know. I, uh, I I admire that about him, 
and it's maybe a little bit of American exceptionalism on my part. I don't know. I sort of resent Chaplin uh, coming across the Atlantic and trying to beat us at our own game. I actually agree with that. I think it is probably American exceptionalism uh, and my part as well. And Chaplin's British and... Well, gives him the right. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, like, I mean, Giant Knoxville's ripped off Buster Keaton's gags and like they made a multi-million dollar fortune off of Jackass. And uh, I don't know. It'd be nice if somebody just like gave a little nod here and there. But not that Keaton loved it, but he wouldn't want that at all. Like He, he would just want to make trains in his backyard, you know. One thing we've mentioned is that, you know, Buster was great with gags and everything, but he also used the camera in ways that few other people were doing at the time. Um, Bennett, do you maybe have any favorite instances that kind of give an example of how Buster was just innovative with the camera as well as just with the gags? Uh, well, I think those two instances um, that I mentioned from from One Week and Sherlock Jr. are a great example. There's also one that um, Sarah singles out in the American cinema from uh, The General, where he's hiding under a uh, table, and um, one of the guys who's sitting around the table burns a hole in the tablecloth with um, his cigar, and we see Buster kind of upside down, looks at kind of his, his object of affection through the hole in the tablecloth. That's sort of like... Uh, like makeshift iris effect was something that I don't think anybody was doing around that time. And it's like a three second shot, you know, Buster does nothing to really like draw attention to it, but it's um, a subtler version, I think of the sort of like inventive um, stuff we see from him in stuff like Sherlock Jr. Or even an early short, like one week. Josh, do you have any favorite Buster camera work moments? Uh, no, not really, but like, uh, no, I just, I just think like his his stunts and his physicality is like it was most exceptional about that time period. Off the top of my head, like we talked about cops, like I would say like it's insane, like uh, that like a car drove by and he just grabbed a hold of it and it went horizontal. I think that's ultimately one of the greatest bits of all time. And again, it's like, it's almost like a transitional gag. He doesn't like, he doesn't like rest on that. Like it just, it just happens. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It moves on to the next scene. No problem. Like, they don't even address it further. They, that's it. It just goes on to the next scene. Like, yeah, that's, that's what a gag, great gag should be. Whereas like, if that was a joke in a comedy today, it'd be in the trailer and <laughs> we'd all know it. Yeah. Yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> and, and the poster, you know, like a POV shot. It's like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, 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 it'd be silly. Yeah. Well, I think the crazy thing about that gag, especially, is that the only places I've really seen that done is in cartoons. Like Buster did that in real life, right? And it's crazy. He predates like the Looney Tunes. Like so much of this, like we think of as being like elemental gags that, like you know, we we would have seen on like cartoons. But like he's like ten years ahead of that. Twenty years. Head of his yeah, time yeah, yeah. is putting it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's it's a weird thing to talk about, too. And this is why I have such a hard time talking about it. It's like, it's like probably like a lot of like depression and mental health issues going on with him. Like, that's not funny at all. I'm not trying to laugh. But like, he, he did have that. And he was just like, screw it. I'm just going to do this. I don't care. There's a, yeah, there's a sense of fatalism to the, 
I'm willing to die on camera. And I think, I mean, his only anything close like a peer today, I would say, is probably like Tom Cruise, a man who I'm convinced is going to keep making Mission Impossible sequences until they've captured his death on camera. <laughs> so you're probably right, Bennett. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, I think that fatalism comes across. I think in the in his famous essay, James Agee talks about the the melancholy in the um, in the Keaton uh, persona. And again, I, I think what's so great about the stone facedness is that he doesn't like underline that melancholy. Well, yeah, it was Cibo Bill with the, the famous thing fell on, yeah, the house fell on him or whatever. Yeah, like he said it. he was like, yeah, I just signed out with MGM. I gave up my studio and my wife is divorcing me and uh everything he's like i didn't care man because that thing fell on me and broke my neck and killed me like i'd be fine with that and it didn't happen but like now we have this great stunt now and like jackass and giant axville and the simpsons and family guy and whoever does this bit over and over again because this one dude's depression and like lack of enjoyment of life like he just went ahead with his gag like it's so bizarre to think about um it's it, it, one of the funnier because it's a gag he does in a couple of films in uh in the haunted house uh there's like actors who are on stage doing a version or i think they're on stage and there's a house like set behind them and the house set actually falls on one of the actors. So it's, it's funny to see him do almost like an in joke at his own expense, uh, in, in his films. Uh, I don't know. Even if he didn't break on camera, he was obviously a funny guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I never knew him, but like I've watched the documentary. He's like, he seems like a nice enough guy. I don't know if he was a funny guy in real life. <laughs> it seems like kind of a jerk, but like, uh, I, I, I love that. I'm a kind of a jerk, and uh, I, I think I would get along with him quite well. And uh, we're both Michigan guys, and uh, I just think that, uh, I don't know, it's, I, it must have been really tough for him to, like, be one of the biggest stars rivaling Chaplin, and then, like, this new technology came along called the talkies, and you don't have a life anymore, man. Like that must have been really, really hard, man. Well, I think it's another reason he he appeals so much. It's such like a it's like an elemental story that you can't help but like sympathize with. You know, the having nothing, having everything, having nothing, clawing to get some of it back is uh, it's such an appealing story, uh, and he he embodies it more than uh, almost anybody in Hollywood history. Yeah, yeah, and just coming to peace with the fact that you just you know, live in a little house with your wife and play bridge. So I, I just have two more questions for you guys. Um, but Josh, you've mentioned he joined MGM. Uh, that was in 1928. He yeah. later called it the worst mistake of his life. Um, yeah. He lost control of his films. You know, we've mentioned that he fell from the public conscience. He, he, he struggled with alcoholism. He got divorced. He lost all of his money. Why do you think the studios were unable to use buster to his full abilities because i've heard pretty much the cameraman was his last great film from everything i've read i haven't seen any of those uh, films from that period myself but what what was going on there i don't think the studios are smart i still think they're smart um i and I, 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 I they're they're a business and they're not artistic at all and they are uh inherently flawed I still feel that to this day, even though that was 19, 
what did you say, 1928 when he signed with MGM? Am I right? 28. Yeah, I think the cameraman yeah. was 28 or 29. To this day, man, I, I don't think that the studios are doing it well. They haven't really like made an effort to like deviate or to be creative about how to approach 21st century Hollywood. And like this like a little embarrassing. So like Buster was pissed off about it. Uh the Marx Brothers are pissed off about it. Like fucking Chaplin was pissed off about it. It's Douglas Fairbanks is pissed off. That's why they created UA. All the UA institutions are like gone. They don't even exist anymore in Los Angeles. Like they're not, it's, it's so so what do we got? YouTube people? Right. Like that was going on? YouTube like, and TikTok. Jake, Jake Paul? <laughs> that was, that was, Jake Paul's gonna fight somebody. He's the, only, uh, he's the only he's the only independent Paul fight somebody uh you know I, there's maybe an essay somewhere in there about how uh the Paul brothers are, are the last two auteurs something like that <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true though it's it's amazing though the degree to which nothing has changed I mean Buster Keaton in, in in 1928 we see the same story as we've seen with like just about every other artist who's ceded any degree of control to studio powers. Uh, what makes, what makes their work interesting gets squeezed out and uh, they become miserable. You know, they did it to Elaine May. They obviously did it to Orson Welles and they did it to Zack Snyder folks. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, you're not wrong, man. Like, I mean, from what I hear, Zack's a nice enough guy. Seems like it. Yeah. Uh, the studios, man, they're, they're not any artist's friend, but yeah, I mean, it is why they, they, they founded UA and, uh, I think Chaplin even told Keaton, he said, uh, it's like the worst mistake you could possibly make leaving UA and going to MGM. Yeah, he did tell him that Keaton was broke at the time. He didn't really have any options. He was getting sued and uh, he was trying to back up Roscoe and fight. It was a mess. I mean, I honestly think that like when Clint Eastwood dies, we'll have lost like the last studio director who has any sort of artistic control he is literally like the last studio out here <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 that leads to my final question well i think so in the cook you know essentially they save the girl and they chase the tough guy away uh, the gags kind of lead to them becoming heroes but in cops buster does many heroic acts but he still loses the girl and it is not a happy ending um in his later films he often gets the girl but there's an overbearing sense of limitation to all of his characters even when he accomplishes the heroic his films rarely end in triumph um can you both talk a bit about the keaton worldview and how he makes comedy out of limitation and ultimately failure yeah i think gilberto perez in in the material ghost says something along the lines of um how the tramp is always kind of in his own way an aristocrat, but the Keaton character is this kind of outsider who endeavors to, by whatever means possible, become whatever he needs to become to succeed in um, a world that is kind of moving uh, around him. Um, he's he's a lone guy in kind of a mechanical world. You know, it's interesting that we associate Keaton or Chaplin with being fed through gears because I think Keaton is the one who actually sets his films in a kind of like mechanistic world his is the character who often feels like he's kind of being like fed through gears uh if that makes sense yeah yeah i agree uh ben you nailed it man and uh but um there's also a thing like what is the chaplin film where you know he's like kicking rocks out of his 
stone, like sitting next to a girlfriend of his. He's like, don't cry. We're going to make it. And then smile plays in the background. And then they, they walk down the road. That type of optimism is not in Keaton's films. And, and for whatever reason, I don't know. But like, I like that for a reason because like I just don't have optimism in my life. Like I, I, cause I'm from the Midwest or whatever. Like it just, it's things aren't enjoyable. Like people hurt and people die. So Chaplin's very delightful about like, well, things are going to be okay. We can be lovely and delightful and do these things. And like, I'm like, yeah, but that's not really how it goes. You know, it's been a while since I've seen any Chaplin honestly, um, which I should should probably rectify at some point. But yeah, no, I, I, I like the lack of optimism and sentimentality in Keaton's endings. And I like that besides something like Cops that quite literally ends with him, you know, probably being beaten to death, there's uh, there's not like a sense of finality. It's not like quite despairing. It's, it's just sort of like an ambiguous life goes on, like the ending of uh, the general, him kind of riding off on the, I don't know, whatever you call that, the uh, the, the piece on a locomotive that holds the wheels together when he's kind of riding off on that bar by himself. I feel like that's almost like it reminds me of like the ending of like the graduate or something. It's this sort of like ambiguous, like kind of victory. No, oh, yeah. They, 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 they don't know if they made the right decision or not. Yeah. Like, you know, Keaton is in a world where like, oh, I guess I, I made the right decision. I, I've won based on the standard set out at the beginning of this movie, but like at what cost and like was the girl I was chasing that great to begin with? Because after all, she was insistent I become an athlete or a Confederate soldier or, or whatever. It, it was modern yeah, times, by the way. Modern times? Modern times, yeah. So do you guys feel that Chaplin's optimism might be part of the reason why he's more publicly favored, I guess is the way to phrase it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Craig. There's no dot in my brain. Like, that's why he is like ultimately favored over Harry Langdon or Harold Lloyd or Buzzer Keaton or uh, Michael Jackson did a cover of smile, right? Like it was the biggest pop star of all time. Like right? it was because of uh Chaplin, you know, like absolutely. I think because of his, his direct like emotional attachment to like his work was bigger than anything else. And like that, that made a difference in filmmaking uh, in general as time went on that we'd all understand that, okay, yeah, we can attach emotions to filmmaking. So Wizard of Oz or Citizen Kane or whatever, anything that came after, we just, it was understood like, oh, it's because of Chaplin, because of modern times or city lights or whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, we, it was understandable that the emotion was transferred through this medium called film. Yeah, I think his his emotional availability goes a long way. Although, I find that the the kind of stoicism, the stone facedness of Keaton, makes him easier to relate to. I'm gonna get both the name of the book and the author wrong, but I think it's Scott McCloud, and I think the book is called Understanding Comics. When he talks about the reason, like the most uh, popular and most like easy to relate to comic characters tend to be drawn so simply is because then you can, you can mask them. You can sort of put your own face onto them and your own experience and whatever. It's why like, you know, 
Tintin works and he wouldn't work if his face looked like you or mine. Um, I like that in the Keaton movies, it's it's sort of easy to imagine yourself in the role or easier. Um, there's so much business to the Chaplin character. There's, you know, you, you can suggest him with the mustache and the bowler, but really it's the pants and the walk and everything. Whereas Keaton, it's really just the expression in the hat. You know, if I, if I took my notebook and I drew like a horizontal line and then just drew one vertical line standing, you might almost describe that line as like Keaton-esque because Keaton, something of the persona is literally just like a single figure and blank space. Uh, everybody is Keaton in, in in a sense. I don't know. And watching the movies, um, so I don't know. Even though, even though Chaplin on the surface has that more kind of naked emotional appeal, and like has certainly to popular audiences had that more emotional appeal. I don't know. I guess Keaton hits me more on the go, uh, the gut level uh, in that emotional way for that reason. All right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to start wrapping up. So to end the episode. Oh, we didn't get to talk about goat glands. Okay, that, yeah. Josh, you mentioned something before we started recording. This is a joke that went over my head. It was the type of thing where it's like, I know there's a joke there that I just don't get. So Buster and Cops has a horse, and they stop outside of a place that says goat gland specialists. Do you want to give us a little breakdown of what this is? Because the history you gave us earlier was absolutely hilarious. So. All right. So, like when I saw cops when I was a kid, like I was like, okay, it's not a goat, it's a horse. So, the goat gland, that, that must be the joke, right? Like, no, no. There, it turns out there's this doctor who moved to Los Angeles and became a goat gland specialist, like right after the pandemic of 1918. And uh, as you know, I don't know if you guys know, like, we're in a pandemic right now. But uh, um, anyway, this guy came out here and he was like, nobody nobody wants to have sex. Nobody's like having babies anymore. Like, what if I sewed goat glands into the testicles of a male? And if that doesn't work, then I can sew them into the uterus of a female. And this person's name is... Uh, Dr. J.R. Brinkley was a doctor, and it became such a huge hit in Hollywood in the late teens, early 20s. And uh, it was the goat gland. He was a goat gland specialist. He was the goat gland specialist. And so that was the joke in Cops of Buster Keaton's. Like, if we were in 1922, like, we would have gotten that bit. Like, we we're not. So silent movies were like not f- funny or entertaining to people in the late twenties and early thirties. So they adapted, like they had tape audio tracks to the side of the tape uh, to sell movies, but that would call be called goat glanding. Like, yes, silent movies aren't interesting anymore. So like we're going to call them goat glanding and whatever. Yeah. Well, Richard Linklater is, Working on a movie right now with uh, Robert Downey Jr. as being the star. He's going to play the doctor, J.R. Brinkley, as the goat glanding dude. So, like, everything's, yeah, everything's great. And It's funny because, like, in watching the films, I was like, wow, there's, there's, like, there's really nothing in these films that you couldn't, like, you, you could show somebody these today and it's still, it's still, la- they'd still laugh. Everything is still so funny. But 
that is one it's one joke that is very much lost in translation a joke that probably made sense to audiences living in 1922 through like 1925 and then hereafter thereafter made sense to absolutely no one <laughs> unless yeah, yeah that's right man so like i, I saw that I, was, I saw it as like man i always thought it was like oh it's a horse it's not a goat so that must that must be the joke and i was like wait there's probably something more to it than that and and it it turns out there's a lot more to it than that and uh yeah man no it's, it's fascinating right you know it's, it's crazy Ch- imagining like a 1922 father having to like explain that joke to their child but like they might not have had to because the child probably also was familiar with the, the concept of goat gland specialists god i think we can only look forward to the experimental surgeries that'll be coming up after this pandemic now <laughs> oh. <laughs> well either of you guys have any either final questions or thoughts about buster keaton before we wrap it up Folks, I would just say, you know, if you're a if you're a listener, I mean, obviously, I think if you're listening to the podcast on Split Tooth, you're hopefully something of a, a you know, a, a film fan. But I don't know if you're maybe unfamiliar with uh, silent cinema, if you're unfamiliar even with black and white cinema. Um, there's really not much of a better starting point than the shorts and features made by Buster Keaton, besides uh, the occasional joke about goat glands and. I'll be honest, yeah, I mean, occasionally in the shorts, you're going to run into some some racial humor that hasn't aged especially well. Um, uh, other than that, you're really going to, I don't know, you're going to find comedy that hits just as hard as it presumably did, uh, you know, around 100 years ago. All right. Well, Bennett, as always, thank you for joining me. And Josh, it's been so great to finally meet you. And um, if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, Bennett and Josh had a really amazing interview. It's available on the site now. I mean, it's a lot of fun to read. So that's our Buster Keaton talk. There's more split picks coming soon. We're not sure which one will be next, so keep an eye out. Uh, Synesthesia is coming back shortly. The Art House Drive-In will be back in probably a few weeks. So I'm Craig Wright, and Bennett Josh, thank you again. We'll have more coming soon. Uh, I, I like to think of myself as the Buster Keaton of podcasting. <laughs>